grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Never forget. That's the mantra that we've heard so much over the past week and especially yesterday, isn't it? Never forget. And how could we? You remember where you were when it happened. I myself, it was my second week of school as a freshman at Michigan State. I was coming back from an 8 a.m. class, the bane of every freshman. I remember getting back to my dorm room and uh, my roommate was already glued to the screen, tears in, her, tears in his eyes saying, we're under attack. But what I really remember is the phone call I got a few minutes later. It's from my buddy John, one of my best friends from high school. And John, right out of high school, he had enlisted in the Marines. And he had just gotten out of boot camp. And he called me up and he said, just bawling his eyes out, Ryan, I don't want to die. How could any of us forget? And yet we still need to hear it, don't we? Because we are fickle and forgetful people. Our memories are like Teflon. We're like the anti-elephants in so many ways. You can even think back to 20 years ago, how after that happened, the churches were filled, right? People saying, we're never going to forget. We're going to change. Things are going to be different. But were they different? We are forgetful people. But let us never forget the awful tragedy of that day, the sacrifices that were made by countless first responders and military ever since. Let us not forget the great liberties that we have been given in this wonderful United States of America where we are able to practice our faith freely. Let's not forget the gifts we've been given. Amen? This week, as I was reflecting upon and meditating upon the 20th anniversary of 9-11, but also thinking about the, the task of Christian education, which we're focusing on this Sunday, I was thinking about where these two things intersect, how they come together. And my brain latched on to a phrase in our Old Testament reading today from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God is setting out the task of Christian education, if we can put it that way. And he says, teach these words diligently to your children. And why is that? What is the rationale? What is the purpose for this education as God lays it out? Well, it's very clear, he says, lest you forget the Lord your God. Lest you forget. Because God knows that we are fickle and forgetful people, that we all have a kind of spiritual amnesia and that's why we need Christian education. That's why we need to be continually formed in the mind of Christ again and again and again. That's why we need to be instructed and to be growing in our knowledge of the scriptures and the knowledge of God so that we might be wise for salvation, as Paul put it in our epistle lesson. So what I want to do this morning is to reflect some more on this task of Christian education. Not only why we need to do it, but who is responsible for it, when and where it happens, how it happens. And then I want to come back at the end to that why once again and share with you a moving story of one young man who did not forget the lessons learned of his faith, even as a young man. But first, let's talk about Christian education. And first, who is responsible for it? Whose job is it to instruct the young and the old in the faith? Well, the natural response, your first answer probably is, well, you are, Pastor. <laughs> you 
You're the guy that we pay to do this. You're the one who's responsible for teaching the rest of us about the Lord. And that's certainly true that it's my job and my calling. Or you might say that it's the Sunday school teachers or our parochial school teachers, our Christian day school teachers. And that's true too, that they've got a calling and a charge to share God's truth with the next generation. But what do the scriptures say? Who does that task, that responsibility first belong to? Very clear on this point. Belongs to the family. Belongs to parents and grandparents, guardians, godparents. God says, teach these words diligently to your children. Who's he speaking to there? Who's the audience? It's to parents. It's to the family. You are the first instructors of the faith. You are the primary catechists. You are the ones who are going to rear the young and bring them up in the truth and the knowledge of God. Yes, the pastor is here to help. The Sunday school teachers and the the parochial teachers, they're here to come alongside you as well, to, to spur you on, to encourage you, to help you. But that responsibility belongs first and foremost to you parents and grandparents and godparents. Paul alludes to this in the epistle reading that we heard too. Paul's writing to Timothy. And he says to Timothy, remember these words that you were taught from your childhood, literally from infancy. And he says, remember from whom you learned it. Well, who's he talking about? You know, earlier in Paul's second, uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy, he refers to how you learned the faith, Timothy, from your mother Eunice, from your grandmother Lois. Thank God for grandmas, right? Where would we be without grandmothers? They were the first teachers of the faith, Timothy, even before Paul himself. Our small catechism, Martin Luther picks up on this as well. Now, I use the small catechism in teaching confirmation. We use it as a a tool in formal Christian education. But you may know, above each section of the small catechism, Luther included a heading. It says, how the head of the household is to teach it to his children. Luther wrote the small catechism, first and foremost, as a handbook for families to pass on the faith to their kids. When we talk about the who of Christian education, the first answer to that is the family. And look, I think we need to hear this in 21st century America, where we are so prone to outsourcing pretty much everything, right? You can go on to to Craigslist or Yelp, and you can find somebody who will do anything for you. That's a natural kind of attitude. And yeah, of course, there's a place for that, right? There's people who it's their vocation. Like, I do not want to try to plumb the house, okay? The church, because it owns the house, does not want pastor to try and do any amateur plumbing, no matter how many YouTube videos I might have watched, right? There's folks that that's their vocation. We ought to entrust that to them. But you know what? When it comes to the task of Christian education, this is something that belongs first and foremost to the family. And I love how G.K. Chesterton put it. He said, the rearing of the young is the kind of thing like blowing your nose and writing a love letter. It's the thing that you ought to do yourself, even if you do it badly. (laughs) You don't want somebody else blowing your nose for you. And when it comes to passing on the faith to your kids, that belongs first and foremost to you. Now, just a word of grace here, because I know for some of you, you're thinking, ugh. I don't know that I can do that so well. Or maybe even, I know that I haven't done this so well. Take heart, see. Because in countless ways, large and small, God is using you, sometimes even in spite of yourself, to form your kids in the faith. You're here, aren't you? 
You're listening to the God's word. That, in many ways, is the most important thing you can do, is to keep bringing your kids into the context when they can hear God's word. And yes, your pastor, your Sunday school teachers, we're here to come alongside you, to support you and encourage you. So that's the first part of Christian education, the who. First and foremost, it's the family, as well as all those whom God has called to help and to support. But secondly, let's talk about the when and the where. And I really want to um, consider those together, the when and the where, because they go hand in hand. And we heard it in our Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy, where God says, okay, you shall teach them diligently to your children when you sit down and when you rise in your house along the way, bind it on the, the doorposts of your home and even as frontlets between your eyes. If you were to say, what's the where and the when of this education? Well, the where is wherever you happen to be, right? It's in your home. It's in the car. It's when you're shaving in the morning. It's in all of these various and sundry places. When does it happen? Again, it happens in the warp and woof of everyday life. It's just woven into our normal lives. That's where the most impactful formation and education really happens. Yes, there's a place for the formal instruction teaching, too. We know this. This is why we're celebrating today and kicking off our Christian education ministry. There's a place for education that happens in the classroom with formal instruction. But you know as well as I do that so much of it happens informally, right? That growing in, in faith in Christ, becoming a disciple, it's more like learning to be a carpenter than it is to be a mathematician or a physicist. What I mean by that is it's a kind of faith that's like elbow knowledge, right? It's caught more than it's taught. You just learn it being around people of faith. I mean, think about in your own life the moments that were most formative and most instructive when it comes to your faith in Christ. I remember the moment when I realized I wanted to be a pastor. And it wasn't when I was sitting in a Sunday school class or anything like that. It was when I was 30,000 feet up in the air and I was flying back with some other folks from my church, coming back from a mission trip, and I was sitting beside this former pastor, older guy, and we were just talking about what does it mean for us to be saved by grace alone? And he did this awesome thing. He pulled out one of those little airplane napkins and he started drawing stick figures. And he's like, Ryan, here's how we are apart from God's grace. And he draws a stick figure with the X's over the eyes, right? He's like, we are spiritually dead. But then we need Jesus to come. He draws Jesus coming in. Jesus is going to rescue us. And he's the one who comes down and pulls us out. We're dead in the water. And then he lifts us up and he's drawing all this on the napkin. And he's getting all animated. My peanuts are spilling all over the place. And that moment, I'm like, I want to be a pastor. What a cool gig to be able to draw on napkins and tell about Jesus to, to those who are interested and even those who aren't. So much of education happens in those elbow moments, right? The informal times together. Lastly, let's talk about how Christian education happens. We got the who, we got the when and the where, but how does it happen? And this was actually embedded within one of our words from the scripture itself. God says, teach my words diligently. Well, the Hebrew word that's translated there as teach diligently is the word shanan. Let me hear you say shanan. Shanan. Shanan, yes. Shanan, it's a lovely Hebrew word, but this is the only place where it's used to describe the act of teaching. Everywhere else where it shows up in the scriptures, it's used to describe the sharpening 
of a knife. Shht, shht, shht. The way you drag your knife or your sword, your dagger across the whetstone in order to sharpen it, to keep it nice and pointy, right? And now God says, this is what the task of education is like. It has to happen with intentionality and repetition and regularity. That kind of sharpening is not something that just happens once and you're done. It's something that happens over and over and over again. This is how education happens too. It's an ongoing formation. You don't just do it once and then you're done. Contrary to popular expectation, when it comes to confirmation, it's not just you get confirmed and then you're out of there, right? That you graduate from faith and then you're like, okay, I'm glad I don't have to go to Bible study anymore, right? No, it's the beginning. It's a a lifetime of continuing to learn from the scriptures and and growing in God's truth. Shannon. We even talk about this when we say, oh, that person is really sharp, right? That kid's really sharp. It's because they have been shenaned in the faith. And again, in our gospel reading, it speaks of the parents bringing their children to Jesus. But what it literally says is that they, were, they kept on bringing them to Jesus over and over and over again. That's how it happens, with repetition and regularity. This is why we use the liturgy in our worship, too. People sometimes say, oh, the liturgy, it's just rote. But I say, no, it's just right. Because it is repeating God's word, drumming it into our ears and pressing it upon our hearts year after year after year, week after week after week. Repeating those words that God has spoken to us and speaking them back to him. It's not vain repetition. It's formative. It's shaping us in the mind of Christ. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper week after week after week, receiving the very body and blood of Christ on our mouths and in our hearts. And we do that, as Jesus says, We do this in what? Remembrance of him. Lest we forget all that the Lord has done for us. Who he is for us. Because look, if our faith is going to stay sharp, we need to be brought to Jesus repeatedly, regularly, weekly. Because you never know when you are going to need it most, right? A guy by the name of Wells Crowther. He didn't know when he was going to need it most. But with the faith that he had been given from childhood, when he had to call upon it, it was there at the ready. And so I want to conclude today by sharing with you his story. So Wells grew up in a God-fearing home where his parents brought him to church week after week after week, even against his protests. Maybe some of you are here today against your protests. Your parents love you and they're good to you glad that you're here. Week after week after week. And in fact, the most important and pivotal lesson of faith that Wells learned was in one of those Sunday mornings. Not in church, but as he was getting ready for church. Wells is seven years old, and he's standing beside his dad. They're getting into their Sunday best, right? Wells is putting on his little gray flannel suit, and he's trying to get on a tie. And like, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't get, I still can't get on a tie. That's why I became a pastor, so I don't have to wear a tie. This collar's way easier. His dad says, okay, Wells, you can't get the tie on. Instead, I'm going to give you this red bandana, red handkerchief. You can use it as a pocket square, and that's going to look sharp. 
But of course, Wells' dad, being a dad, is not going to allow this moment to pass without doing a lesson, right? Dads, we're always good at this. Like, I've got a lesson to go along with this, son. And so Wells' dad takes that blood-red bandana and he says, Wells, I want you to think of this as a symbol of pure love and compassion. Because he says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And he gave that red bandana to his son. That was all the lesson at the moment. But from then on out, Wells was inseparable with that bandana, carried it with him everywhere, became how he was known, the kid with the red bandana. Flash forward 17 years later. Wells has graduated from college and he's working as an equities trader on the 78th floor of the South Tower on September 11th, 2001. And when the plane hits the building, he miraculously emerges from it unharmed. But when he kind of comes to and looks around, he realizes that there are scores of people who have already perished and many more who are mortally wounded and injured. And in that moment, Wells reaches for his red bandana and remembers the lesson his dad taught him. Ties it around his face to protect himself from the smoke and goes down into the great big room where bodies were just everywhere. He calls out to everyone who could hear, come and follow me. Starts picking up bodies and lifting them with a kind of supernatural strength, taking one after another after another, leading them to safety. And then when he could have escaped with his life, he goes back again and again and again. Countless lives were saved because of Wells, a dozen in all that he literally dragged to safety until finally the tower fell and Wells lost his own life. But those dozen lives and the more that he saved, they remembered who it was that rescued them. It was the young man with the red bandana who remembered that lesson at his dad's elbow, that greater love hath no man than this. Listen, you and I don't know when that faith in Christ is gonna be called upon, when we are going to need to put into action all that we have learned. This is why we attend to the task of Christian education. This is why it matters so profoundly, so that when the moment comes, we're ready. Even though we are fickle and forgetful people, we don't forget our faithful and forgiving Lord. And remember this. He is the God of whom it is said, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet God will not forget you. Never forget it. Amen. And may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. At this time, I'd like to invite our Sunday school teachers to come forward to join me in the chancel as we continue with the installation of the Sunday school teachers.